And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As the brutal, heartbreaking war in Gaza drags on, I thought it was time to sit down for some wisdom from an old friend of this podcast, Thomas Friedman. For 45 years, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and New York Times columnist has covered the agonizing complexities of the Middle East as few others. Now he's campaigning through his work for the only solution that he believes can end the war and bring a measure of peace and security to both Israelis and Palestinians. Here's that conversation. Tom Friedman, it's always great to see you, particularly important at this time, uh, given what's going on in the Middle East. But thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure, Ax. Um, uh, you can't seize too many opportunities for an intelligent discussion on this subject. Yeah, you said when uh, before we started uh, recording that this was the hardest story you've ever covered. And I, I guess that's self-evident, but talk a little bit about that, because you've been covering this region for decades and decades. And in fact, there was a little bit of a state of besiegement at the beginning of your of your journalistic career there uh, early on in Lebanon and so on. Talk about this moment and what makes it so difficult and what makes it so portentous? Well, I guess it make, what makes it difficult are a lot of things. One is the, the level of trauma that Israelis and Palestinians have inflicted on each other in this war. I, obviously, I covered the Lebanon War, Sovereign Shatila, uh, the Israeli invasion. I've, I've seen a lot of very terrible things. But the kind of interpersonal way this war started, Hamas people with GoPros um, shooting kids in front of their parents, parents in front of their kids, raping Israeli women, abducting infants and uh, the elderly, the sick. I I hadn't seen that. That was a, a new low. Yeah, I have to let me let me interrupt you for one second and just say all of that. I felt so deeply. And the thing that just tore me up because I have a an adult child with uh, special needs was to see a young boy who uh, was a, a special needs boy being led off. And I was, thought about my own daughter and how she would never understand what was happening. And uh, it just, I mean, it shattered me. Anyway, I just wanted to, you caused me to have a flashback to October 7th, and that was the one that really stuck, one one of the ones that really stuck with me. But at the same time, Israel's retaliation, invasion to dismantle uh, Hamas, destroy the leadership, which has involved bombing on a campaign in Gaza that, you know, thousands and thousands of Palestinians, men, women, and lots of children uh, have been caught up in, whole families wiped out. I mean, you just read about some young girl who, you know, lost like 30 relatives, you know, and she's the only one left alive. And honestly, I, I haven't seen that either. I mean, in, in Lebanon, I saw bombing, you know, I saw Palestinians killed, uh, people, Lebanese, Shiites, etc. But that's, it's just so many civilians uh, who were, yes, left completely to their own devices by Hamas launching a war that it knew would uh, result in in this kind of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a lot of people, Ax, and Israel's going to have to reconcile with that after the war. So, so to get ready for this conversation, you know, I read you in real time, but I went back and read all your columns since October 7th. 
And reading your initial columns were stri- was striking to me because you made you offered some ad- admonitions and made certain predictions, and your admonitions were not heeded, and your predictions sadly have come to pass. You were counseling, as was President Biden when he went to Israel, restraint. Could there have been restraint? Could the would the Israeli population have tolerated? restraint in that moment? You know, it's a good question. I asked myself that, and uh, several people said, hey, gone back and read your early columns. They look good now. To which I say, I got to tell you something. Um, I wasn't feeling like I knew better. What I was really trying to do in those early columns is I was watching Israel and thinking of America after 9-11, when 99% of everyone thought that, you know, we needed to go on a war of revenge, basically without a plan for the morning after. And I was one of them. So at a time when everyone in Israel seemed to be thinking the same thing, Axe, I wanted to be um, a friendly voice saying, hey, hey, wait a minute. I mean, have, you, have you thought this through going to war in Gaza without a plan for the morning after, without an elite that is united? I'm talking about the military and political elite. With a prime minister who's um, under um, uh, uh, indictment, there, it, it was just so clear to me there would be so many mixed motives, you know, going on here besides the issue, you know, of uh, of deterrence, of creating the, a different relationship with Gaza, and it was it was as much of that as anything that I was just wanted to be a team B that says if you thought this through, um, uh, I, I quoted uh, Confucius as saying, um, if you're going to war for revenge, dig two graves. Yeah, well, you also, you also, in your October 10th column, you basically said Hamas launched this assault, uh, that, that, that one of their uh, imperatives was to trigger an Israeli overreaction, like an invasion of the Gaza uh, Strip that would lead to massive Palestinian civilian casualties. And your point was to uh, bring a halt to the, the march toward a, uh, an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, normalization of relations. The jury's still out, and you've been writing about that lately as to whether that's yet possible. But certainly the first part came true. And, and you know, I said, I mentioned you not only gave them that admonition, but the president gave them that admonition in just the same way. He recalled the, our reaction as a country after 9-11 and the mistake that that was. I think people forget that because he's getting... Uh, he, you know, everything that Israel does now is on his account, uh, his political account. But you also said early on that you thought that the president owed Israel some tough love. Do you think he has his his uh, love has been tough enough? You know, um, a lot of people have asked me that lately because you keep reading about these phone calls with Netanyahu um, at each stage of this, and then Israel goes forward. I think Biden's in this very difficult situation. At one level, he understands. Because it's actually a shared American interest that a Gaza that was not ruled by Hamas would be better for Palestinians, first of all, uh, then for Israelis, then for America, and then for America's allies. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, we live in a world of, of social media um, uh, uh, and the like, where this many civilian casualties, I, I don't know what the right tolerable one is. You know, I mean, people have been comparing what we did in Mosul, whatever. All I know is this is too many. Um, it's way too many. And Israel is there's going to be a reckoning with that when this war is over. I I really think 
Um, Israelis have to really contemplate. They're traumatized now. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, but and so what I think Biden's been looking for some formula, but his real hope acts is to get a ceasefire and a hostage release because he knows that will trigger Israeli politics that has at least a 50% chance of toppling Netanyahu and opening the way forward. So why, I mean, so he actually, at the end of the day, can't change what Israel's doing. This war has a lot of grassroots support, uh, as would a war in America we saw after 9-11, or if Mexico came across and you know slaughtered 10,000 Americans one day. Very hard for a government to resist that. But I think B- Biden's just sucking it up right now. Um, but talking, doing, I think something very important. Talking about the need for Israel, Lincoln too, to to partner with Palestinians on a two-state solution right now. But I think Biden's just hoping somehow he can get to a ceasefire and a hostage release that will trigger Israeli politics, and hopefully a lot of this, if not forgotten, will be put in a different perspective. There's so much in what you just said. There are about six different strands to pull on here, uh, and I want to get to uh, all of them. First of all just on the issue of a traumatized Israel. And I know you spent some time there after the the Hamas massacre. I spoke on this podcast to a friend of mine who you undoubtedly know, Ilana Diane, who's a broadcaster. Absolutely. And, you know, Ilana's a very straight-talking investigative reporter, hardly a Bibi Netanyahu acolyte. But she was so traumatized as the word by what happened, that she spoke about shattered illusions and about living across, you can't live across the border from monsters who want to kill you. And, you know, when I heard those words from Alana, I thought, this has to be a pervasive view among Israelis who had just suffered the worst losses since the Holocaust and in the most brutal and awful ways. How do you read the Israeli mood now? Well, I I hear that, um, and I hugely respect it. Israelis have said to me, don't even mention the word Palestinian state. And to which I've said, I understand why you're saying that, but I'm going to mention it. And I'm, a, I'm actually going to mention it even more, because there has never been a time, X, where um, I should say generally, I've done something with you that I actually rarely do, and I'm not going to do anything more in this end. I I try to not describe the problem. I try to describe the solution. I'm, I'm entirely focused on the solution because what I found over the years is I can never describe the problem in a way that will satisfy everybody at any given moment. And I understand why and where they're coming from. And so my what the role I try to play in this ecosystem, because um, more than maybe a lot of people in this story in terms of American reporters or columnists, I have a lot of Arab and Muslim friends who are writing me all the time also. Remember, I, I came to this story from Beirut, not yes. from Vietnam. Yes. You know what I mean? And I, ha- I, I hear them, I want to hear them, and I respect them, and I hear from them also. So I hear from the equivalents of Ilana Dayan on the other side who are people have been involved in Arab-Israeli reconciliation and two-state solution and see the casualties in Gaza, and they're, they're also just, you know, enraged and, and not thinking so clearly either for obvious reasons. So I'm trying to use my energy to focus on, okay, what's the way out of this? Because for me, plan A is to get to two states for two people. 
And that's always been plan A. And if you ask me what plan B is, it's to try harder on plan A because there is no other way. Now, unless you think perpetual war between Israelis and Palestinians is going to be good for either side or perpetual Israeli occupation is good for either side. What I wrote my column about is why everyone in the region now, more than any time that I can remember, needs the horizon of a two-state solution more than ever. Israelis need it, Palestinians need it, Americans need it, America's Arab allies need it. There are two parties who don't need it and want it, Hamas and Netanyahu. And um, so this is going to be a fight. And my way of, of contributing to it is to say, I am going to talk about this. It's, it, it, it's not just important. It's the only way. There is no other way other than perpetual war, perpetual occupation. And those would destroy Israel. Yeah. I, I totally subscribe to your view. And I was, of course, part of an administration where oh. the president <laughs> subscribed to your view. And I, I, you know, I very much one of the first trips we took was to the Middle East. Yes. Yeah. I remember sitting, uh, the president sitting with uh, uh, Mubarak of Egypt and with the king of Saudi Arabia, you know, talking about trying to recruit them into this. And I remember Mubarak. He it was a little it's like a scene out of The Godfather. He was the weary, and he calls the president over. He says, "Sit, sit close to me here," <laughs> and he says, I, "You know, we will try to help, but you have to understand this is a very complicated neighborhood." Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how Israel uh, survives as a Jewish democratic state under these circumstances, and I think the constant a constant state of besiegement is 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 really difficult. But the reason I asked you about the, not to get you to go over the problems, but it seems to me that part of the mood, but the mood of the people, of the Israeli people is important to this equation. And if their conclusion is that the presence of a Palestinian state is more menacing than the status quo, that becomes a political barrier to what you're trying to accomplish. I want to read you something, Tom, because I have a friend who was a fellow at my Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, who was a stringer for NBC News in Gaza. And he, uh, Richard Engel recommended him to us. And he came, it was very difficult to get him out of Gaza. He came and spent three months in the uh, US. And he developed a relationship with Jewish leaders. And in, in the, for the first time in his life, he was able to have dialogue that he had never had. But he wrote me, every once in a while, I keep writing him to see if he's okay. And I got a note from him the other day, and he said, hello, dear. Thank you for your support in Gaza. No one is okay. No one is safe. No one has hope. No one believes that he will survive. No one trusts the ability of the world to stop these massacres. The next days are so difficult as the last four months. The future is so dark. The hope is ending in Gaza. The death is coming for all of the Gazans. Our people have two choices, to die from bombing or to die from hunger or to be refugees once again in the Sinai Desert. You know, I watch, I mean, I have obvious and and personal affinity for Israel. My father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, a refugee from the pogroms. Uh, So, uh, and what I saw on October 7th was beyond anything I ever imagined. But I don't see that you can't hold two thoughts at one time. I weep for those children that I see on television in Gaza. I wept when I got this note from my friend, who, by the way, was a force for trying to find reconciliation. So 
it's a it's it's just such a such a, a painful uh, situation. But you, that was just me venting at your expense. So I apologize in advance. I share the view, and I, as I say, I because I also have you know a lot of Arab and Muslim friends who write me. I hear from them all the time, and um uh and and blessedly they. They care what I say, as do a lot of Jewish readers, as do you know, others in general. So I'm just because of that, I'm trying to um, not be the official scorekeeper. Of course, of course. Just to finish this, I'm, I'm trying to to look through everybody's pain and chart some way that we can get this back on a different course. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the two Bs, Biden and Bibi, but let's talk about Bibi first. Because you talked about people's complicated sets of motivations. Netanyahu, first of all, was the uh, prime minister who had first and foremost uh, protected, uh, 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 projected himself as the man who could keep Israel safe. And he was presided over the worst annihilation since the Holocaust. Uh, 50 years ago, when that happened in Israel, the government was dispatched. and there's a high likelihood that whenever this ends and there is an, or an accounting, he'll be dispatched. Uh, so what motivation does he have here to, A, uh, bring this to a swift end, and B, knowing that he needs his right-wing base to be venturesome on the issue of governance and a two-state solution? Well, the short answer is zero. And this is what, again, worried me from the very beginning, was that um, Israel was starting a war led by a prime minister who, first of all, carried this huge guilt burden. That's never a good way to start a war. And then um, uh, knows that he's facing possibly the end of his career because he brought just the opposite of his reputation. Mr. Security presided over Mr. Insecurity. He was not alone in that, obviously, but he was very much part of this. And what he will have to answer for most acts is a policy, and this is what has really always upset me about him. I'm not an illusion about anything out there. You know, I mean, I've been doing that for 45 years. Um, I'm not in love. I don't fall in love with anybody. Okay, but all I know is this: that um, for since the Oslo Peace Treaty, um, there's been a Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. That has cooperated, you know, pretty much every day with Israeli security forces, the Sheen Bet, um, and the military, to to keep some kind of peace in the West Bank, despite expanding Israeli settlements. You, you know how you know that? Just watch all four seasons of Fauda. Fauda is about the Israeli underground, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, strategic team, whatever it is. That cooperates all the time with the Palestinian Authority uh, at great expense to the Palestinian Authority. I'll challenge you, X, and all your readers to bring me one example, one single example from the 16 years of Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's rule where he has ever acknowledged that publicly, thanked the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian Authority, and said, you know what, guys, we have our issues, but You've been a force for stability there. Yes, there's all kinds of other problems, incitement, textbooks, uh, payment to prisoners and whatnot. I, I, I get that. Those guys also swim in a very complicated reality, but never once, never once. So Axe, is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that a lot of Israelis say, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, they're all the same. 
Oh, no, they aren't the same. You know, these guys not only recognize Israel, these guys have not only maintained a formal policy of nonviolence, they've actually been collaborating with Israel for some Palestinians in both senses of that word, which is the second sense, not so good, okay? And they have gotten not an ounce of credit. So imagine you had an Israeli prime minister, let's just start here, who said, I actually want to work with you. I want you to succeed. Not an Israeli prime minister who said, I want you to fail in Ramallah, and I want Qatar to send a billion dollars to Hamas. Right. So they will be strengthened in Gaza, so I can then go to President Obama, Biden, Trump, uh, Bush, whoever, and say, God, I'd love to make peace with the I'd love to, love, but they're divided, Hamas here. Right, there's no partner, right? There's no partner. So maybe there's no chance for a two-state solution. But what if, what if you actually had a prime minister who wanted to try to make it happen? Maybe you'd have a different Palestinian partner on the other side? Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. But I think try. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You're of the view, and I think there's a lot of evidence to support it, that the last thing he wanted was a strong Palestinian authority, because then the pressure to make to agree to a two-state solution would be hard to ignore. Absolutely. Now, as I've also written, Hamas, which I think is just an incredibly destructive organization, as I wrote in my column on Tuesday, okay, I actually told, this is an important week for me personally. 22 years ago, this week, I went to Saudi Arabia, and I sat down with then Crown Prince Abdullah, and we did an interview in which he laid out the Abdullah peace plan um, after, built actually on a column I wrote, okay, in which I urged the Arab League to declare a peace plan post 9-11 calling for total Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem in return for Palestinian, sorry, for and a Palestinian state in return for full normalization with the entire Arab League. 
And I went to see Crown Prince Abdullah, and he basically made that proposal. The uh, all hell broke loose. There was they called an Arab League summit then in Beirut on March 27, 28, 2002, to make the Abdullah ideas into the Arab Peace Initiative. March 27, March 28, which they did. It became known as the Arab Peace Initiative. And you know what, Axe? It didn't go anywhere. And you want to know why it didn't go anywhere? Because on the evening of March 27th, a suicide bomber blew up a Passover Seder at a hotel in Netanya, uh, killing a you know, slew of Israelis, injuring over 140, okay? And you know where that suicide bomber was from, Axe? An organization called Hamas claimed credit for so spare me the tripe that Hamas had no choice or whatever. This is what Hamas did on the eve of the first pan-Arab peace initiative, the Arab peace initiative that included even Syria. So they have a history here, and until they are out of the way and Netanyahu is out of the way, we're not going to be able to know really what is possible. Imagine if you had people actually were committed to helping each other. Think of Northern Ireland. It took a while, but to actually, or de Klerk in Mandela. Imagine that rather than what we've had for so many years. Now, did we have that before them? Palestinians made huge mistakes, in my view, around Camp David, um, a blown opportunity with Barack. I, again, I, 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 I say to you, okay, um, uh, you say the Palestinians and will never you know, come together with Israel on anything, sign a two-state solution, to which I say, then I don't see how the next generation of Israel is going to stay there, because you're talking about permanent conflict. Yeah, the old Abba Ibn said, the, the, the Palestinians has never yeah. missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, but... No, but so have the Israelis. You know, so, right, right. Netanyahu never missed an opportunity to squash an opportunity. Well... You know, and and uh, with, with, with uh, during the last 16 years. I want to get to Iran's role in this, but before I do, just you, you provoke a memory. Uh, I went to Israel in... Uh, 94 with a group of democratic officials and uh it was an apac trip and we met with netanyahu we met with uh, perez and we met with rabin and uh it must have been in early 95 and uh, there was a guy in the group who asked each uh leader the same question if we go forward with oslo what will you tell the settlers uh, Netanyahu said, well, I won't have to tell them anything because I won't move forward. I'm not going to ask them to leave. Perez said, well, I'd, I'd tell them they're free to stay under Palestinian rule, which he may have meant it, but it was, I thought, an insufficient answer or maybe the answer of a, of a, of a uh, utopist. I don't know. Uh, but And then uh, Rabin said, I would tell them that too much blood has been spilled. We've lost too many of our young. Peace has a price, and this is the price. And you could see why he was the leader. And uh, I wonder, and you probably wonder and have thought about this because you think so deeply about these, how different history may have been but for an assassin's bullet uh, later that year in 1995 that took Rabin off the field. Yeah, there's no, there's no question that the death of Sadat, the death of Rabin, really, really mattered, you know, and, and that's on the minds of a lot of leaders today. They, they don't want to end that way, you know. The, but, you know, the other thing about that was that Bibi's position then was very much, I mean, how much do you think Bibi's position on, a, uh, on two states is rooted in his own narrow 
and desperate political needs because he is under indictment, he loses power, he could go to prison. And how much is rooted in his uh, longstanding and familial position about uh, Judea and, uh, and Samaria and uh, the historic claim, the biblical claim of Israelis, of Jews to the West Bay? I, I take him at his word. I think it's both. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure his political convictions are sincere. He's written books about it. And at the same time, um, I'm sure that he knows if he loses his coalition right now, Israel's a country that puts prime ministers and presidents in jail. Um, he could very well end up in jail, and that's clouding everything right now, which is why Israel has to get past him. Give him a pardon, whatever he wants, a, a future home um, on Larry Ellison's island in Hawaii, whatever you want. You know, I'll just say one thing, else because you know, my view is Israel is to wider trends in civilization of what off-Broadway is to Broadway. And Israel is just the off-Broadway version of what is going on here. Well, Trump and Yahoo are brothers from different mothers. And there's only one good thing I have to say about both of them. And that's, thank God, that God only made one of each. That there's there's just, you, you get Trump away from the Republican Party, you get Netanyahu away from the Likud. I think it opens up possibilities for both that um, are unimaginable right now, because I think they're too uniquely I mean, world-class politicians in their own ways, but um, also just so interested in power and power alone and their own power that obviously they meld that with the national interest, uh, but I don't, I don't think it is. Yeah, well, look, I think they share a feral genius for yeah. exploiting anger, outrage, resentment, and manipulating the modern media environment. Yeah, uh, I think that they uh, share that. Let's talk a little bit about American politics as it relates to this situation. Obviously, the president, as you 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 said a couple of weeks ago in your column, I guess maybe it was last week's column, you talked about the emerging Biden doctrine, which very much follows in the path of the Arab proposal of 22 years ago. But he's under great political pressure here as well. Talk about how he's handled this and whether you feel that he is in a position to deliver this. You know, let me start at 30,000 feet and then... Yeah, good place to start. Yeah, so I just gave a talk to a group of retired U.S. diplomats, a wonderful group here in D.C. They gave me an award. I gave them a, a nice talk. And, um, and I told them there has never been a worse time to be a secretary of state or a U.S. diplomat than today. Because so much of your job is managing weakness, not strength. So when Henry Kissinger was negotiating the post-73 peace between Egypt, Syria, and Israel, I'm going to date myself here, Axe. He needed three dimes. Three dimes. One to call Golda Meir, one to call Anwar Sadat, one to call Hafez Assad. Three dimes and a plane, and he was on his way. Okay. Or Tony Blinken has to... Uh, uh, are the Houthis in the phone book? Does anyone even know? Are the Houthis in the phone book? If if the, if you call them, does the phone come off the wall? By the way, if you bomb them, do they even know? You know, they're already in a, in a completely bombed out country. You know what I mean? That to be the president of the United States and the secretary of state is so much to manage weakness now, not to manage strength. And managing weakness is hell on wheels, okay? Our weakness, weakness of parties there. So I start, you know, there. This may be a good place to insert Iran. Because the Houthis, yeah. uh, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah are, in a sense, agents of the Iranians. They have, they may have their own agendas that, but 
they're basically agents of Iran. So they are they are weak in that regard. And how do you manage that? Um, it's also well. Um, so you were around for the beginning of this problem. Not you did it, but you in forty four, which is that our entire military posture in the Middle East today is built to contain ISIS and to prevent it from coming back. So we have spread out all these small bases that are just big enough for Iran's proxies to hit, but not strong enough to project any power back against that Iran threat network. And so we're completely misaligned to that threat, which is now a new threat. And which is why I've been saying, again, to go back to Palestinian state, having that that horizon, Israel needs a Palestinian state because to change, it's losing on the narrative. It needs a it needs the horizon of a Palestinian state to recover the narrative. It needs a horizon of it to get out of Gaza, and needs a horizon of it to generate the cement we need for what has to be a regional alliance to take on that Iranian threat network of, with all its proxies. Israel can't do that alone. Um, America had to bomb the Houthis, you know, with the with the British Navy. Well, wait, 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 wait. Let's see how many allies lined up to bomb uh, to to retaliate to the, against the Houthis for for blowing up global shipping in international waters in the Red Sea. How many countries lined up to actually pull the trigger? The United States and Great Britain. Now this is a huge global problem, but right now Israel um, is because of Gaza has made itself so radioactive that our air partners don't want us using their air bases. Okay, and our European allies are also dicey because this is what's coming up from the bottom and that's why you need all of these things you know the b1 bombers that hit uh the 85 targets and then hit all of them but hit some of the 85 targets in retaliation for the attack on our base that killed three americans do you know where those b1 bombers flew from x yeah texas yeah texas okay yeah. there's a reason for that we have, a, we have an air base aludade that can handle b1s trust me and so we're we're in a our, our, our strategic posture is completely misaligned to this new threat. And, um, uh, and, and that's why, again, I start with, let me go back to 30,000 feet. What was going on in the world on October 6th? Very simply, Ukraine was trying to join the West and Israel was trying to join the East. Okay. And Russia has been trying to stop the first and Iran and Hamas and the others trying to stop the second. So let's think about the pivotal moment we're at right now, okay? Basically, if Ukraine, biggest land army in Europe, biggest breadbasket in Europe, and the largest tech community of engineers are one of the largest in Europe, if Ukraine were to join the European Union, a Europe whole and free would be almost entirely in our grasp, except for part of the Balkans. That would be such a game changer in Europe and such a threat to a kleptocracy like Putin's. It's a huge possibility. Same time, in the Middle East, if Israel were to join, to normalize with Saudi Arabia and vice versa on terms acceptable to Palestinians, charting the way to a Palestinian state, Iran and its allies become completely isolated. We begin to birth a European Union of the Middle East anchored in the Arabian Peninsula with Saudi Arabia playing Germany. There's a huge moment we're at right now, and the bad guys understood that. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and and that's what's going on here. Now, under it are a million other things going on. I'm not saying that was the only thing, but that's Hamas and Iran knew if that happened, they would be isolated. By the way, Hamas, I, I, I'd even give them some credit for this. 
knew that Netanyahu was trying to do this deal with Saudi Arabia and give the Palestinians nothing, zero, zippo. And right. they knew if they lost that card, there'd be nothing left. The Palestinians would have no leverage. Can I ask you something about two states? You talk to people about two states, and I've talked to Palestinians and I've talked to Israelis about it. And one of the questions that comes up is, given the nature of the settlements and the continuing growth of settlements, that it's become much more complicated to draw a palatable map. And so talk about that. About Is that a false argument? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer we need to bring a whole new level of imagination to that subject. There is a group of Israelis and Palestinians, I'm going to be writing about them shortly, in Israel um, and the West Bank, um, whose project is called um, uh, Two Nations, One Homeland, or Two States, One Home, Two Nations, I think, One Homeland. And the whole idea is that you have two states, but completely open between them. So Jews want to live in, in the West Bank under um, uh, whatever, Palestinian law or whatever. Palestinians want to live in Israel, that everyone can live everywhere. And you may think, well, that's Tom, that's the craziest idea I've ever heard of. Well, this is maybe this is what Perez was talking about back in 1994. The group is called A Land for All, Two States, One Homeland. Okay? Two States, One Homeland. Now ask yourself this, Act. Which group of Israelis and Palestinians hasn't blown up since October 7th? Israeli Arabs. They're Palestinians too. They call themselves Pal- Israeli Palestinians. You know what I mean? But they're living as citizens, not in their own state, but in Israel, in Israel, but they're living together, all right, and still collaborating together. So anyone says, not possible, impossible, we have two million Israeli Arabs in the middle of this war. No one's been shot, no, you know, I mean, there have been some crazy examples of, of people saying things online that got arrested, that's going to happen, you know, but basically, for the most part, um, you know, people are still living together, and that's remarkable. And, you know, I did a long story when I was in Israel about Israeli Bedouins who saved Jews on a I saw that, yeah. And so it's about imagination. It's about it's it's about not starting by saying that's impossible. Not starting by saying, oh, you your your fears are exaggerated. No, it's about it's about starting with the real emotions and then saying, wait a minute, if we bring some creativity, this has been my complaint, X, about Netanyahu um uh, and his crowd um uh you know for, for a long time. And what all I ever said was, I don't, I don't know if there's a two-state solution out there. I don't know if there's a Palestinian partner for a secure peace with Israel. I, d- I don't know. All I know is this. Israel has one of the most creative classes of any country, pound for pound, in the world. Where is all the creativity that's gone into cyber weapons and tools and tech startups and social networks? Where have you seen, like, wow, jaw-dropping creativity? from Israel or Palestinians about that problem. It went away. Well, it requires that and some level of courage, you know. What I'm I'm just saying is all I ask for your sake is give me your best shot, not telling me why it can't be done, because you you have this incredible creative class, and, and that's where, you know, I think it has to be brought to bear. There's a really interesting interview, you you probably saw it, that Ezra Klein did with uh, Salam Fayed, who you know well, I'm sure, who was the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority in the, in the, in the early part of the century. I actually coined the term Fayadism 
to uh, uh-huh. uh, describe his institutional building approach. Yeah, and one of the things that he said, I mean, he's still, you know, he he, I'm sure he would commune with you on this notion of moving forward, and uh, he does believe that at this point that the idea of extinguishing Hamas completely is probably a fool's errand. What he said about the earlier attempts and the earlier discussions about a two-state solution is that they they weren't that the that what was conceived of for the Palestinians wasn't exactly a state uh, that it didn't have the full qualities of a state and that uh, that Palestinians why should the Palestinians have a watered down state and it, it, he made a pretty compelling uh, argument about that but. Let me just ask you about your point about this moment, because it does feel between what's going on in Israel, what's going on in uh, Ukraine, and what's going on in Washington and our election, this really does seem like a hinge moment in history. Oh, we're we're in 1989. We're in 19, you know, 62. We're we're in a hinge moment exactly, and um, it is not exactly sure which way the door swings. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I want you to talk a little bit about what's happened in the Congress and uh, and and Trump's influence in the last couple of weeks, you had a a Republican, a Democrat, and an Independent in the U.S. Senate earnestly negotiate for months to develop and come to a very tough conclusion. I mean, hard fought, hard negotiated compromise that would have been a very tough border bill, would have funded Ukraine and funded Israel, and Trump pulled the string of his supporters in Congress and said, no, I don't want to solve the border issue until, you know, it's a bit, it's better for me if Biden doesn't have his name on the bottom of that bill. Uh, And, uh, you know, and he's also sowed doubt about Ukraine. And over the weekend, you saw what he said about NATO that, uh, you know, he'd throw NATO to to Putin if they didn't, uh, if they didn't fund their militaries uh, adequately. He, he, I think, going back to the feral genius idea, I th- he sells the idea that the uh, that they somehow owe us money, and that they're not paying money they owe us. the The idea is for them to fund their own military. But be that as it may, you must have been. I can only see your head exploding <laughs> when all of this was unfolding because it touches all of the equities and all of these challenges that you've been discussing. We have, look, we have a Republican Party whose motto, whose bumper sticker is very clear, Trump first, Putin second, America third. Trump first, Putin second, America third. Now, I ask myself, you know, Max, we've known each other a long time when I covered about. I'm not a partisan person. I'm going to try to be a decent middle road guy. My identity is I'm a, I'm a cross between Walter Mondale and Thomas Hobbes. 
You know, I'm a Minnesota kid who went to Beirut. You know what I mean? And so I'm not a hyper-partisan person. I was talking to my wife you know, the other night and watching what the Republicans were doing on the immigration bill. And I could only say, X, do these people not have wives and kids? If I behave in that craven way against the interests of my country for Donald Trump, I come home, the mattress is in the driveway. I'm sorry. Um, with all my clothes strewn around the front desk, my girls wouldn't talk to me. Um, this is not about, about a right left. You know what I mean? It's dad. Did you sell your soul for 175 grand a year and free parking at National Airport? Really? This job is so important. That 175 grand and that free parking spot at National Airport, that's what it's about. And so I just, I have to tell you, X, I watch that behavior. I don't know anyone in my life who behaves that cravenly, especially toward a, a, a know-nothing named Trump, who is himself an incredible chump, okay? A chump for Putin, uh, you know, uh, and, and not to mention a whole bunch of other people. And so uh, once I get done venting, though, <laughs> yeah. I just say, um, my friend Leslie Goldwasser, I've quoted her several times. She's from Zimbabwe, a dear friend of mine. And she said to me once, you know, you Americans kick around your country like it's a football, but it's not a football. It's a Fabergé egg. You can drop it. You can break it. Don't do that. Yeah. So I, I lived in a country, Lebanon, where politicians thought they could crack, bash the system, steal money, and it would all hold together. It'd be there when they wanted it, you know. And then one day, X, they hit it one too many times, and it fell apart, and it was gone, and they can't get it back together again. That can happen here. No, I, I listen. I, I feel this strongly. You know, democracy is not a gift. Democracy is a project, exactly. and yeah. every generation has to re-enlist in that project. And uh, with, there are all kinds of pressures. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you're not only someone who's thought deeply about the Middle East and reported on it, but you thought deeply about technology and the impact of technology. And uh, we are, our politics has come to mirror social media. And, uh, you know, we have algorithms that, uh, you know, the thing that keeps people engaged in online on social media is anger, resentment, outrage, and people are shoved for deeper and deeper into silos and are told to regard everybody outside of the silo as an enemy. And that's a lot of how our politics is working right now. That's how people raise money. That's how Trump, Trump is a perfect reflection uh, of it. But the other thing, Tom, is that our democracy is set up to move ponderously when we are divided. So we have this technology that is raising people's anxiety, that is dividing us, and democracy that is moving, as we saw on this immigration, Ukraine and Israel bill, slowly, and it gives people, it, it adds to the jaundice about the whole system. I, I think it's a caustic mix. You know, I worry a lot about how we're going to navigate our way out of that. Well, you know, I just say a couple things. You know, there's no, the founding fathers, because they didn't want this to turn into, mock, uh, into a monarchy, created a separation of powers. But if you have separated powers, it presumes compromise. If you have separated powers and no compromise, you have what Frank Fukuyama calls a vetoocracy. You, you can't get anything done. And so there is no democracy without compromise. And, and that's where 
we are going. It's where social networks are driving us. Now, I I have never looked at Twitter. I've never looked at Facebook. I've never smoked a cigarette. My plan is <laughs> not staying all three. Um, <laughs> you'll you'll live longer without any of them. But. I consume zero social media. Now, I use Twitter as a um, a broadcast platform to to tweet out my column. And if you call me and ask me to tweet out something for you, my assistant will do it because I don't know how to do it and I don't even know the password. Okay. So, and this is how I learn. This is how I interact with people. And um, uh, and it's the only way if you're sitting in the middle of a story like this and you're not sitting, you know, just on the sideline somewhere, but at a newspaper where people are really reading it and caring about it. Um, uh, it's the only way I can keep my head on my shoulders. But because of it, I, I don't walk around with my fists clenched every day and say, Axe, did you see what that guy wrote? Up? Yeah, right, 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 right. I'm blissfully not there. Sometimes I miss things. I'll deal with that. But many millions of Americans are not as healthy as you. Yeah. Uh, many, many millions of Americans spend a lot of time online, on their phones, uh, getting fed whatever their algorithm says they'll receive with interest, Yeah, whether it's healthy or truthful or, or not. Yeah, I think this is the problem because it's destroying the two necessary pillars of a democracy, which are truth and trust. If we don't know what is true, we cannot know which way to go. And if we can't trust each other, we cannot go there together. And big, hard things can only be done together. And we're, we're before our eyes, we are literally taking the greatest country in the world and literally hacking away at it. And um, uh, in, in in and there's a craziness on the left, um, and there's a craziness on the right. And and right now, the one on the right, in my view, is far more dangerous. But there's craziness everywhere, and I don't know how we get back to, um, you know, uh, some kind of, I still believe that this is a center-left, center-right country, but you'd never know it from the noise out there. No, you're absolutely right. What happens if, first of all, what happens if this aid to Ukraine stalls, if the aid to Israel stalls, you know, frankly, if the border bill stalls, but let's, let's focus on Ukraine. What, what, is, what is at stake right now? You know, Putin will wait for the end of winter and when Ukraine would be pretty much out of anti-aircraft weapons, and then he'd own the skies over Ukraine. And then he can just pound the place until they agree to um, whatever terms he sets. And um, uh, God knows what they'll be. That's the worst case scenario. I think Ukrainians who are very creative and inventive will find ways to deter him, even if we don't give them a dime, but I sure hope we will. I'm sure the aid for Israel somehow for political reasons will will get through. But I'm worried about the immigration bill more than anything, because there's actually so many good things happening in the country. And if we could just fix immigration, this central open sore, I think we take off as a country. I think we, I think that's part of what the stock market's saying. We have a lot of good yeah. going. We actually take off. No, 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 let's not do that. Let's see, what is our single most important competitive advantage is that people Rot to come here. Now, last time I checked X, yeah. God distributed brains equally around the world. What he didn't distribute equally was countries that would be receptive to the most energetic and the most creative of them coming here. And if we if we throw that away, we just revert to the global mean. That's all we do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's worse than you say because we're also an aging country. And one of the ways we renew ourselves ourselves or renew our country is through generations of immigrants who come here as young people uh, to make a better life. And by the way, most of them come here to work hard, 
to succeed. Uh, not, not to, not, not, not the caricature of people who want to sponge off of our social welfare. So there, there are more generous social welfare systems elsewhere if they, if that's what they are looking for. So, well, the thing I love most is what's our single most comparative advantage over China? It's immigration. Right. What does Trump want to do? Surrender it. Right. No, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Before, before we go, I need to talk to you about, you know, when you talk about social media, the thing that you, see on TikTok and Instagram these days are a lot of photos and film of what's going on in Gaza. Yeah. And it's impacting young people. It's aimed at young people yes. in particular, and it's impacting them greatly. You see what's going on on our campuses yes. and the debacle at, you know, that we've seen at some of our great universities. And uh, how concerned are you about that? And how do we uh, navigate through that? Because, uh, you know, I'll tell you, as threatening to Israel as some of these other issues is the fact that younger Americans and younger, even younger Jewish Americans are disaffected because these kids are imbued with this passion for human rights and so on, and, uh, and they see the Palestinian cause as a sympathetic cause. So I can't fix social media now. I can't wish TikTok or Facebook or Twitter away. All I can tell you is this, Acts, we're going to end where I started. You give me Israelis and Palestinians engaged in a serious enterprise, an effort toward a two-state solution with the horizon of two states for two people, I'll fix 90% of your PR problem fast. Bad situations get amplified by this. Now, the whole woke thing, that's beyond my pay grade. That's just not my thing. You know, what's going on on campuses and, and you're working on campus. I'm not. All I know is, you know, I find what I read you know, often very disturbing. But I, I got enough things to disturb me from the Middle East than to wade into that one. <laughs> so. But you're right that a good faith effort to solve that problem, not just for now, but forever, would help enormously. Changes everything. Tom Friedman, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, brother. You're, you're, such, a, you're such a smart guy and such a thoughtful guy. And uh, uh, anyone who, who wants to... Uh, educate themselves about what's going on in that region ought to be a faithful reader of your column as I am. So thank you so much for the time. Pleasure, Axe. Anytime. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Lena Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.